Well, good morning. My voice keeps going out today. It might sound like I'm going through puberty at some point. And I blame it 100% on the soundtrack to The Greatest Showman that's been playing in our house 24-7 lately. Um, but uh, regardless, we are here to uh, hear the word preached this morning and uh, to worship the Lord. I also wanted to point to you, there's a, a little comic in your bulletin. We don't usually put comics in the bulletin, but uh, I didn't label it. It comes from the, the, the Bible Project, which is this incredible book that illustrates in this comic form the entire scripture. And it's, uh, it's pretty great, actually. So that's why I included it this week. So. Uh, but we're in the book of uh, Malachi. We preach through these books of the Bible, and, and that's the expositional preaching. And uh, we are in the book of Malachi, which is the very last book in the Old Testament, which means the easy way, easiest way to get there is to go find Matthew and then go back one book if you need to. So chapter 2 today, head that way if you uh, have a Bible and are able to this morning. And uh, so this passage deals with marriage. I think as a culture, we are kind of obsessed with the idea of marriage, this idea of the ultimate commitment to another person. The uh, weddings are planned out many, many months, sometimes years in advance. The flowers, the music, the reception, uh, you know, the question of whether or not you're going to do the chicken dance at the reception. Uh, we chose to do it. It was wonderful to watch my bride doing the chicken dance in her wedding dress. Uh, we'll never forget that. Uh, but we are just obsessed as a culture. You know, romantic movies are uh, often ending with the, you know, the man on his knee and the marriage proposal or maybe the I do's of the marriage ceremony and, and then they roll the credits and we assume this happily ever after. And yet we live in the real world. We live in a world that is infected by sin. And so we see the statistics telling us that happily ever after, and after often crashes into miserable and over. Uh, that's often the reality. And at times there is clearly one spouse to blame, but more often than not, it's much more complex than any finger pointing can begin to explain uh, what, where it all began to really go wrong. Uh, what we find is that regardless, uh, universally there is the result of pain. There's pain for the husband and wife as they are separating. There's pain for those who are close to them. There's pain for their children of, of that marriage. And what we find in this passage today, uh, in the scripture, in our passage today, is that, that God, who loves us and desires what is good for us, encourages his people towards marital faithfulness. And he gives hope. Um, he gives hope and grace, even as he is warning us uh, against divorce. And even as he is you know, commanding us to be on guard against the, the possibility of unfaithfulness. And so, uh, let's read the passage it's a little weird. Everything in Malachi is a little weird. So you're going to read it at first and then wonder, well, well that's weird. Uh, and then hopefully we'll make a little more sense out of it. Starting in verse 10, chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithful, uh, faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jer Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, <clears throat> covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And so guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. O Lord, you alone are awesome. You alone are worthy of our worship and worthy of our allegiance. May we know our own hearts well today, to know if we have been unfaithful in any way to our spouses that you've given us or to Jesus, our Savior, and our bridegroom. May your word work powerfully in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So godly marriage decisions uh, and rules for divorce become complex incredibly quickly. Uh, and so I want to simplify this passage right from the start a little bit before you get into those, those kind of aspects. It can be boiled down to uh, two marriage-related issues of what's going on here. First, uh, the men were deciding to marry these women who worshipped foreign gods, gods other than the one true God of Israel. And secondly, they, in order to do so, they were divorcing the wives, their Israel, Israel wives, or godly wives, uh, so that they might do this. And the reasons that they're giving for this, this divorce, the reason they're giving for doing this, aren't the most common reasons we might think of today. It's, it's not that they were in this relationship with, with constant arguing or, uh, or disagreements. It's, it's not that they were lusting after some other woman uh, that they, they were desiring. And, and while those reasons may have contributed, the, the main reason that the people of God in this passage uh, are, are doing this is because they were a, a small group, right? Israel is a tiny group, and they're in this bigger culture that is surrounding them, uh, and a culture that is a whole lot more powerful than, than they are. And so they're marrying the daughters of, of these Persians in order to, to get a leg up politically, to get a leg up financially. Uh, you see, in their, in their selfishness, what they're, they're finding is that they, they, they didn't care uh, even that after their divorce that their ex-wives were left uh, powerless in this culture, you know, in Malachi's time. What we see is that their, their wives were absolutely disrespected, and, and we see that God is hugely offended by what's going on here. And so as God speaks through the prophet Malachi, the first point that he's going to make is that God is the heavenly father of both the Israelite men in these marriages and the Israelite women in, in these marriages. And, and the reason that God's the father of them is because he made this covenant with them at Mount Sinai to be that for them. And so he's, he's saying this, he's saying this, this sin against your wives is not merely a private matter between you and your wife. It, it can't be separated like that. You're, you're both under the covenant of God and, and thus responsible to each other. And so your sin against your wives is, is actually even more so ultimately a sin against God himself. Culturally, uh, I think we've tried to separate the, the concept of marriage from God's original design. Um, that's where we are. See, marriage isn't merely the ultimate expression of love to another person. That's what it tends to boil down to in our, our culture today. It's, it's not that, though. You see, God had greater purposes for, for marriage and the design of it, and, and he gives that reason there in, in verse 15, uh, where he says, Did God not make them one spirit with a portion of the spirit in their union? And, and what was the one God seeking? God the offspring. So first... You know, Malachi is saying that the, the husband and the wife are, are one. 
And that's more profound than just poetic language that you might use. You see, it's, it's hearkening back to, to Genesis 2.24, where, where we read this, you know, this idea is first presented. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a beautiful mystery. And then we're learning here in, in Malachi that a husband and wife are not just one flesh, but, but they're bound by some aspect of the Holy Spirit. And I, I won't pretend to be able to explain all that to you. Um, I know it sounds incredibly mystical. It's hard to get our heads around. But when two Christians are joined together in marriage, there is a spiritual union happening as well. In other words, it's not just a piece of paper, as the phrase is, is commonly used today. See, the Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment in Ephesians 5 when he, when he says of marriage, he says, uh, this mystery is profound. That's the Apostle Paul, which right doesn't exactly explain it all to us, but uh, we're seeing this mystery is profound. The second thing in that verse I read to you a minute ago is that, that God intends for, for marriage to produce godly offsprings. Um, there are certainly exceptions to this, of course. The Lord may not grant biological children to a married couple and, and instead have other intentions for how their union is going to be a blessing to others in, in the place where they live. But, but it remains true that one goal of godly marriage is to provide a, a stable and, and permanent bond between a man and a woman uh, so as to provide a stable and permanent foundation where children can be raised in the faith. And so with this in mind, you know, let's, let's think about our passage. Israelite men are marrying women who worship false gods. And these men were convinced themselves uh, that it's going to have no impact on the rest of their lives, as you know, that, that they can still show up and make these, these sacrifices to the one true God over and over and over again, as if this isn't going to affect the way they interact with their Lord. Um, I, I hear this today. I mean, I, I hear from those who want to marry someone of another religion or, or, or someone who has no faith at all that, that, that the, and, and they'll just reason that, that, you know, that this issue is just one aspect of who we are. We're bigger than this. We're more than this, uh, you know, as if this can just be compartmentalized and, and put aside. They, they want to treat it as if we're talking about uh, like an Alabama fan actually marrying a, an Auburn fan, right? And we're just going to both continue to worship our own, uh, not worship, my bad. <laughs> Might have been Freudian. Um, we're both just going to continue to root for our own team. It's not going to affect any other aspect of our life. Or, or maybe something like we voted for different people in the last presidential election, but that's just who we voted for. It's not at the heart of who we are. And while you know, those issues aren't deal breakers, this issue is. For the Christian, at least, it should be. See, choosing to marry someone who is outside the faith is a, in a small way is a rejection of your God. And too often, that small rejection grows into a much larger rejection as the marriage to, to an unbeliever and a believer begins to establish and grow. See, there's other places in Scripture that make this clear as well. In 1 Corinthians 7.39 uh, states this, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, right? That's a wide thing. But, but then there's this qualifier there that the verse ends with, only in the Lord. Whoever you wish, so long as they are in the Lord. We see it again in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14 where, uh, you know, it's the famous quote, you know, our verse. That do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't, don't be tied together in, in things such as marriage like that. Uh, the heart of this command, though, is repeated throughout the scriptures. And yet our hearts will absolutely lead us astray if they're not kept in check. 
One of the ways that, that Christians end up in these situations today is deciding to, to date or to pursue a guy or a girl um, who, who honestly has a whole lot of the qualities that you're looking for in a husband or, or a wife, uh, and yet they're not a follower of Christ. I'll say one of the, the most compassionate women I, I've ever known was telling us about a, a boy she met in college, and as she was singing the praises of this boy, uh, she said, he's the kindest boy I've ever, I've ever known. He reminds me of Jesus. And, and Lauren and I asked this question response, but, but does he love Jesus? And he didn't. And, and she justified it as, you know, one day he, he might, one day maybe he will, but, but her heart at this point was already willing to go against what she knows the scriptures teach. And the truth is she could have avoided a great deal of emotional pain that, that came later had she only submitted herself to the, to the wisdom of, of God's word for her. Uh, his word who, who cares for her. Now understand, this, this doesn't mean that, that two people must agree on every theological issue. It doesn't. But, but to marry someone who doesn't share your faith in Jesus is setting up a marriage for, for something that is less than it ought to be, less than it can be, and often an absolute disaster. See, God in his love for us wants to keep us from the hurt and the pain that's going to come from committing the sin. This command isn't about God taking away our, our freedom, right? Denying us uh, exactly what we want. It's about his, his care and his provision, um, his protection that is driven by his great love for his people. And so these, these men in this passage are, are knowingly going against God's command. It's, it's not a surprise to them, right? Oh, we didn't know. Um, you know, but they're thinking it's not going to affect their relationship with God. And, and there when we see in verse 13 that the tears of the altar, right? That's one of those weird phrases. What is this about? Uh, those frustrations are that God's not accepting their sacrifices. They, they, they want to try to give God only this little portion of their life, right? I'm still bringing my sacrifices. That's what you want, right? And, and yet they have this major area in their life where they're saying, this, this is mine. This is mine. It, it, it might be sin, but it's none of your business, God. That's, that's functionally what's going on here. And, and, and we know that they're wrong because our sin is always God's business. And that's a good thing because only God can wash away our sin. That, that's why Malachi here is telling him, though, that, you know, quite frankly, to marry someone outside the covenant community of believers is an act of faithlessness to God. Uh, Kathy Keller, the lesser known Tim Keller is her, her husband, uh, shared a quote from a, a woman who was married to a perfectly nice man, right? Not a bad man, a perfectly nice man uh, <clears throat> who did not share her faith. And this woman said this, she said, if you think you are only lonely before you get married, it is nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you are married. If you're in this situation, though, I, I want you to know God can and does work in amazing ways. But I also don't have to tell you it, it's a difficult place to, to find yourself in. See, if, if, if your relationship with Christ is the most important thing to you, then, then it ought to be the most important thing to the person that you are going to uh, choose to marry, the person you are going to put yourself together in this one flesh union with. Pl plain and simple, let me, let me try to say this, you know, if you find yourself single today, make this rock-solid commitment to yourself and, and to your Lord that you won't even date someone, you won't even take a step in that direction if they don't genuinely love the Lord. Make that the number one prerequisite before you ever take a step in that direction. And so then the other thing that we see going on here 
is that in order to marry these women, what they're doing is, is uh, Malachi, these men in Malachi's time were divorcing their wives. In verse 16, you, you see a little about this. It says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. You see, when these men were divorcing these wives of theirs for these selfish reasons, it's being equated with violence, right? Physical, actual violence is the idea here. And, and, and keep in mind, we, we kind of have to bridge this cultural difference out here, but re remember, in this culture, men held all the power. All of it. Um, and, and so women who were divorced did not have a whole lot of options. It wasn't easy to, to go get a job and, and just start over, right? That, uh, you know, best chance, best opportunity was that they could go back to the family that they grew up in and, and have a place there. But even that was going was gonna to mark them with a whole lot of shame in this culture. And so that's, that's violence against their wives, and, and that's a far cry. This violence is a far cry from the marriage covenant they made with their wives on their wedding day, right? To love and to protect them. And here they are doing quite the opposite. Uh, I probably don't have to tell many of you, but divorce is a ripping, a tearing of, of two pieces uh, into something that was intended to be permanently whole. You know, if I... If you right now, I probably couldn't do this for you, but if, if you just ripped your arm off of your body right now, truth is you can survive that. Um, you can learn to live without that arm. You can live a full life, but you, you can't expect to, to have your arm ripped from your body without great pain, without a whole lot of damage to yourself. That's, that's divorce. And, and the pain and the damage goes further, though, because, because children, no matter how old these children are or what stage of life they are, uh, they're going to be broken in some way or another because of divorce. I, I, I say that not from someone who's outside of it, but from someone who has experienced this myself. I know I've, I've shared it on many times. I won't go into great detail, but uh, my parents divorced when I was 12 years old. I was in sixth grade. Uh, and it wasn't simply that my parents uh, were no longer together. Like, that was heartbreaking, but, but it also ended me with no home at all, right? You have two sets of toothbrushes. You have two bedrooms. You have two of everything else, everything, two houses, in fact, you, you feel like a stranger in your own home at this point because uh, on the one side, I had this incredibly friendly stepmother, but I still felt like a stranger in the house. On the other side, I had a, uh, a very angry, hot-tempered uh, stepfather. And I felt unsafe and also like a stranger in that one. You see, there's this, this security that children gain from their parents uh, as because of the covenant love that they have for each other that simply can't be replicated. That's not to say life can't go on and children can't turn out okay, right? But, but, it, but it can't be replicated, the, the security that is involved in that. Uh, every so often I read a, a YA book. This is, this is my like embarrassment confession. Uh, young adults, what it is. They tend to be really cheesy storylines. Uh, and, and just for entertainment, they're easy reading. And, and not long ago I read one that I, I kept seeing the title of called Eleanor and Park. Um, wasn't a particularly great story. But uh, the teenage boy in this story anyway says, <clears throat> says he didn't find his comfort and his security and his parents loving him, but rather in his parents' love for each other. And he says this, his quote, he says, they loved each other, <clears throat> they loved each other, <clears throat> they didn't have to do that. None of his friend's parents were still together, and in every case that seemed like the number one thing that had gone wrong with his friend's lives. And he elaborates about one of the things he loves about his parents. He says, it's clear that they love each other. They, they kissed each other in the mouth no matter who was watching. <clears throat> and here's a child who probably acted really embarrassed to see something like that, but uh, really it was a comfort to them. <clears throat> so 
Uh, as far as divorce goes, nowhere in Scripture are we required, commanded that we must get divorced because of this or that situation. However, Scripture recognizes that because we live in a fallen world where there are times where divorce is, in fact, allowable. The Bible permits divorce in the case of adultery. It permits it. It doesn't require it, uh, but it permits it. And in fact, uh, in the cases where this has happened, it is a beautiful image of the mercy and the forgiveness when the sinned against spouse <clears throat> chooses to seek reconciliation. But divorce is permitted when this is the case. Everything else gets a little fuzzy. I'm not going to say that that's the end of it, right? But it all gets a little fuzzy. And I don't want to spend our time here because that's not what the passage is actually about. Trying to iron out the details. If this, 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 and this happened, you can get divorced. But if this, this, and this happened, you can't. Uh, that's not what we want to do here. Instead, I want to mention four things to, to try to encourage you today. Those of you who are married, those of you who will be married one day. Um, <clears throat> first, I want you to know if your marriage is struggling... You do not have to walk this road alone. Our elders take serious the commitment to shepherd, and we want to help in any way we can. I'll tell you the best solution in, in marriage is, is to seek counsel long before the word divorce ever comes out of the mouth of either one of the spouses. And there is no shame in seeking counseling. You've got to know that. You're not forever branded in any way if you seek counseling. I hope you feel the freedom to do that. Second, uh, unbiblical divorce is sin. And Malachi speaks harshly about it. You might feel I've spoken harshly about it today, but you also need to know it, it's not an unforgivable sin. The blood of Jesus can forgive this sin just like any and every other sin. So if you're feeling shame from a past divorce, um, take it to the Lord in faith and know that real forgiveness can be found in him. Third, I, I want you to know that God is faithful. This is huge. When you're reading the scriptures, when we're reading the scriptures, we learn that God's covenant people, Israel, were terribly unfaithful. Terribly unfaithful. God knows what it's like to be cheated on. God knows uh, what it's like to be betrayed because Israel was constantly worshiping other gods despite the way he loved them well. You see, if anyone ever in the history of the world deserved to be, divor to be, be divorced, it, it was Israel. And yet God pursued her over and over. God brings her back into faithfulness over and over. And we may often be covenant breakers ourselves, but God's the eternal covenant keeper. Last thing I, I want to point out here is I want to encourage you by reminding you that your two most important relationships are sustained by commitment and, and not what we commonly refer to as just love. Hear me out. Uh, our two most foundational relationships in life are the one that we have with God, between God and us, and the one that we have between a husband and a wife. I guess another way to put this is that there is <clears throat> felt love and there is committed love, and they're different. Felt love may ebb and flow, but committed love is the rock-solid foundation that provides a floor upon uh, which we can stand upon. Consider your relationship with God first. As Christians, at some point in your life, God becomes real to us. Our, our faith becomes our own. We feel this passion. We feel this excitement, uh, you know, for what it means to know Jesus. And you just love that feeling. However, what commonly happens is that eventually the, the passion will fade in some regard. That excitement will, will drain out of your life in some way. And you may not feel God like, like you have before. 
And, and, and that doesn't mean that God is any less real. It doesn't mean that he's any less close to you or, or active in your life. And, and that's the thing about feelings, right? They, they're, always, they're not always based on the truth. How many times in your life have you thought that someone's incredibly angry at you, mad at you, only to find out later on that, that your feelings were completely wrong? It was a communication issue. But they weren't mad at all. You know, how many times early in a relationship, those, those you've had them, did you feel like this is the one, right? Seventh grade, this is the one. You know, you're going to spend your entire life with them. That what could ever go wrong with this? And, and, and yet we, we don't always learn. Now, yes, feelings are an amazing experience. They are a beautiful gift of God. Feelings are not a bad thing. And yet our feelings were never intended to be the foundation of our relationship. That's the point I'm trying to make here. You know, it's, it's, it's like drywall. You want drywall in your house. Have you ever seen one without it, right? It's just the studs. It's, it's not a pretty picture. It makes the room beautiful. Uh, but it would be foolish if you were to build a second story to your house and build the floor out of drywall because you know exactly what would happen, right? You'd go right through it. It wasn't, it wasn't made, right, for that. Drywall was never intended to carry the weight of people walking on it, and our feelings were never intended to carry the weight of a marriage commitment. Feelings are too fleeting, too unpredictable, too fickle. Now, if this idea makes you sad, right, and it can, it often does. I even hear this, and I kind of get sad because we like the feelings. I want the feelings. That's, that's what love should be. And really, I'm not suggesting that you ignore or suppress your feelings, not at all. Only that you, you, you build the foundations with, the, with commitment, right? And you decorate, you beautify with feelings. So what does this mean for our relationship with God? It, it means we stop looking backwards. Um, stop looking to some time in your life when you felt more passionate. Start looking to this very moment in time today where Jesus' commitment to save you is as real as it was the day you first believed it. It means we, we sing songs of worship that teach us the, the truth of God's love for us rather than seeking to simply be built up emotionally for a short period of time. It means reading God's word because it's true, not because you're in the mood to read his word. It means that we pray for God to give us faith, to make him real to us today in this moment if, if we're not feeling it right. It means you sit under, under preaching that tells you the greatness of God. It means being part of a church body rather than simply attending here or there. It means that you find rest in God's commitment to save you from your sin. It means that you think about your own commitment to Jesus as your eternal king. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is, is John 6. Um, where these, these people have been following Jesus, not just the 12 disciples, but a whole lot more, masses of them. And they're starting to turn away because they didn't like the, the feeling of the things Jesus was saying to them, right? He's starting to say some crazy things. Uh, I'm not sure how this applies to my life. You're getting weird, Jesus. And then Jesus turns to, to Peter, the apostle, and, and, and he asks him, you know, so are you going to walk away too? Are you going to turn, turn back? And, and if you've ever read it, you know what Peter said. In John 6, 68, I love these words. He says, who else could we possibly go to? Where would we go, right? You, you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? We're rescued because of God's commitment to us. You know, let us then... In our weakness, respond with, with the strength of the Holy Spirit to live simple, faithful life committed to our Lord Jesus. Let me, let me say, um, 
you know, to God, you are my God and I am your adopted child. You know, let us say that you are my king and I am your servant. You are my redeemer. I am your redeemed because our relationship with God is sustained by his covenantal commitment. It is not sustained by our feelings. In other words, it is, it is God, it is Christ's grip upon you where you find this, this confidence, not in your grip upon God. Uh, marriage works this way too. It's coming back around to this. You know, when you, when you were wed, you, you spoke wedding vows. They were something along the lines of uh, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness or in sickness and in health until death do us part. Those are the vows, right, that almost everyone makes in one form or another. And, and then somewhere down the line, this, uh, the, the feeling of love may, may be less, or it might be lacking completely in a relationship. Uh, the, the southern worth, warm, warmth of the relationship might become this, this northern cold front that blows into your life. And in fact, somewhere along the line, we, we buy into this consumer mentality that, that, that we entered this marriage with the commitment to be united, so long as we're both still feeling happy about it, right? You know, we, we treat it as though this is just some, some TV series, like Grey's Anatomy, that, we, you know, I'm willing to quit this because it just got too dramatic. I'm out. I'm done. You know, hurting husbands and wives then reason, you know, this is what's best for our children. You know, we, we want them to live in a home without arguing, without aggression, and I, I suppose without commitment. See, divorce becomes this, this new hope for happiness. It becomes just like marriage was during those single years. The, the if only, then I could be happy. Too, too often we forget those vows and, that we took and we forget that commitment. And while love is a great gift from God, we, we should work for it, you know, in our, our marriages. We, we need to understand that even our marriages are, submitted by, are sustained by committed love. Uh, love, you know, just the feelings of love ebbs and flows, but commitment never wavers. It's like chasing a leaf, right? Feelings. Chasing feelings is like chasing a leaf in the wind. It's changing directions. And, and what you find is that even if you are able to catch hold of it, what you have is leaf, right? It's not a whole lot to, to do with that. I just believe that if young and old Christian husbands and wives could get their heads around the value of keeping commitment because it is a commitment, that that would create this foundation for their faith and their marriage and their children to stand upon. You just, you know, we must look beyond the moment we find ourselves in sometimes. What we will find is that the foundation of faithfulness actually better provides a place where the feelings of love, those feelings that we enjoy so much, where they can grow and, and flourish in. So I'll say it again, rest in the Lord's commitment to your good and, and give your spouse and your children a, a place they can rest in your committed love and good. After all, when we talk about the, the story of the gospel and, and the scripture, God has married us to himself forever, forever. You know, we, we may be defiled, we may be muddied, we may be stained, but, but Christ has wed himself to us and he promises that he will never ever divorce us. His love is built on a commitment that will never change. You know, may we find comfort in the committed love of our Lord for us. And I'll, I'll just say here before we end, I don't know your situation here today, not everyone's, 
I don't know if his words might have offended you, if you're struggling in your relationship, if you have a divorce in your history, if you, if you feel like these are just words of condemnation. I, I promise you that the gospel offers uh, not, not condemnation for our actions, right, our sin, but it offers a, a great hope that our, our lives are, are, are redeemed in the Lord and that our lives can, can be wonderful no matter where you find yourself today. And I just want you to know that in case this comes across too harsh. The, what you need is, is the gospel. The same word that might sound like condemnation here today is the same place that we find the hope of the gospel in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are weak, but you are strong. You are the faithful one. Lord, in our marriages today, or in our future marriages, would you make us faithful husbands and faithful wives from this day forward so that you would be glorified not in easy marriages, but in faithful marriages. Lord, may we also be faithful to you, our gracious God. May the Spirit so strengthen us so that we, uh, <clears throat> so that strengthen us for the task uh, that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.